0: Grab your highlighters. Can't find them? They're probably right there in your pocket protector. It's time for that early childhood nerd podcast. Let's get nerdy. Here's Heather. Had a blowout. That'll be the time. (laughs) Well, we're not going to explain that little bit. If, if it may not onto this recording, we'll just let people wonder what we were talking about. Welcome to another episode of That Early Childhood Nerd. I'm Heather Burnt-Santi. Ber- yeah, right. I'm Heather Burnt-Santi. Um, joined by Richard Cohen. And um, for uh, those of you watching, recording for the first time since my hair started falling out. So I've got this fancy new wig for recording. Um,
1: yes. Watch the video version of this <laughs> later in the week after <laughs> the podcast comes out because yep. you will appreciate Heather's new do. <laughs>
0: It's hot. Here's what I've learned. I was really, um, uh, you know, of course had some fear about losing all my hair and being bald or whatever. And I've decided that it's just too hot to wear wigs and hats. So I'm just going to be bald. And, um, if people don't like it, they can lump it. That's right. And, uh, but I thought the wig was fun for podcasting. So absolutely.
1: You Um, go girl, (laughs) you do you screw anyone else who
0: doesn't support you. Right right? That's in a whole other t-shirt while we're planning yep. out our t-shirts. So, um, Richard and I are, um, we did a couple of episodes when you first started recording with me, Richard, about teaching um, college students and um, sort of had intentions of making that a regular thing and then um, found so many other things to record about that it's been a while since we, um, since we got to this. So, we're going to do one today and we've got another one in the works um, okay. because we're both, in addition to being um, wonderful conversationalists and brilliant podcasters, also college instructors of yes. early childhood education.
1: And just to mention to your audience, since you're too humble to, <laughs> um, I do not have that particular issue, but you do. Um, since we recorded those, you're now a department chair.
0: That's true. Uh, in, well, I, they they call me a program, a program coordinator. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So these subjects that we're about to talk about are even, we're almost even more passionate about it because we're immersed in it
0: right yeah like yeah when do we, do we do first started on. I was you know just an adjunct just starting right. um, to teach stu- students at, at college and uh now it's the dream job that's been not quite as dreamy this week uh <laughs> I once, you, it's
1: not really dreamy this week.
0: Once, <laughs> once I turn in that self-study and um uh the teaching the board, U- I
1: see self-study for anyone yes. listening, yes. yes
0: then then I'll then I'll be a little bit dreamy again maybe yeah
1: <laughs> And for anyone who's been through the NAEYC self-study process, uh, Heather will gladly accept your pity, your empathy, whatever you have to share.
0: Right. Wine.
1: Yes, wine. <laughs> Lots Ex-
0: <of> it. <laughs> Except Indiana has weird rules about shipping wine, so they'd have to actually bring it to my house. Um, okay, so let's talk. Um, Go I'm going to start with the quote, and then I'm going to give my sort of backstory a little bit and then we can then we can go so this is from um a book called teaching adults revisited it's a newer edition active learning for early childhood educators by elizabeth jones who is a hero and a queen um yes. and i love Oh, her.
1: that happens to be one of my all-time favorite books
0: huh teaching what adults yeah i like it um i remember reading it uh for the first time really last summer maybe and yeah, um, making all kinds of notes and intentions and then forgetting <laughs> So, um, so this one's going actually, uh, in the chemo chair with me Friday when I have six hours, seven hours of uninterrupted time to review it all and, and think about it. Um, okay. So here's our quote. Um, Elizabeth Jones says, as I explained at the beginning of this class session, active participation in both talk and play is required in this course. These are necessary skills in the repertoire of adults who work with young children so I've been rethinking this because as even before I was teaching in college, I was doing a lot of, um, training for adults, like a couple of my jobs when I was a center director, I did workshops and meetings and trainings and I speak at conferences. And, um, uh, then I had a job where I was like a teacher trainer for four centers. And, um, I always tried to be like my, I try to be very interactive. Um, and, and I really want it to be not me t- doing all the talking. Um, but I tried to also have this attitude of, well, they need to feel emotionally safe and for talking out loud in front of people is not everybody's thing. And um, so I carried that into my, my college teaching. Uh, And I I think it's really the virtual piece of it. That's got me rethinking it Um, because there's always one or two who will talk and interact with me and be silly and, and take risks of, you know, sharing an idea in front of other people. But there's always some who don't and especially now that I'm doing it virtually and some of them don't have their cameras on and I don't even know if they're really there you know um but trying to trying to I don't know I'm rethinking it I I, I started thinking I need to be a little bit stricter about <laughs> them making them. and strict isn't the word I want but um I I need to make them understand that this is valuable and this this perspective that Elizabeth Jones gave is you know, if you're teaching young children, you've got to sing in front of other adults. You've got to say things and talk and make decisions and play um, in front of other adults. And if you're self-conscious about it all the time, um, that's, that's going to be sort of a barrier to, to, to doing what we need to do with children. So that's the approach I want to take um, in my classes now with these adults who are working or are going to work with young children.
1: So it's a question of how.
0: Yeah, That's yeah. the
1: best way to do that. Yeah. Uh-huh. So can I facilitate you for a moment? Please. Okay. Um, so knowing this book, you know, which is so dear to me, I know that the bigger idea that she puts forth in that book beyond that one piece that she said is that whatever we do uh, in terms of professional development or preparational development, right? Which for listeners, that's that's kind of what we might call Know teaching community college is Mm -hmm. theoretically preparing them for the job. Although I don't know about you, Heather, but many of my students are currently working out there, you know, as assistant teachers and things. But okay, so one of the things she says is that um, whatever we do in our teacher preparatory or professional development work should be a metaphor for what we want them to be doing or what research says they should be doing with the young children in their care and it's our job to point out the metaphor for them so that they understand that what they're experiencing in class is a is a meta experience there's Mm -hmm. the content and then there's how you're experiencing the content Mm -hmm. so that you get you have your own personal experience of what it might or should feel like for young children so I would say, so what I, when you were speaking, I heard you talk about what you and Elizabeth or Betty thought the teacher should do. Mm-hmm. But let's start with asking, um, what is it we expect of children in early childhood as it relates to play and singing and dancing? Um, do we require it of them? Mm, yeah. Or how do we, um, how do we facilitate their, you know, because let's say I'm with a group of random diverse three-year-olds. Some of them are introverted. Some of them are extroverted. I don't know yet. Some of them may have a sensory integration disorder. Some of them may have trauma at home. If I just say, hey, let's all sing the song or play this game, it's being received by very diverse ears and minds and hearts that have, mm-hmm. have very different contexts in which yeah. that invitation is is being offered. So how do we... I think that the starting the journey of how do we do that with our college students start with asking, starts with asking ourselves, how do we do that with young children? Sure. And so how would you answer that question?
0: Well, my initial thought, um, which is, is not my complete thought. I'll just preface that. Um, my initial thought was, well, children, most children just by, by nature of how children grow and develop are uh more playful and, and more willing to speak. Um, but it depends as we sort of unlearned that as we get to be older and we've, and, and I think this, the, the typical school system is complicit in that by teaching compliance and sitting and being quiet. And as long as people are passively sitting, we assume that they're getting the information we need. So then they have to unlearn what they've You know, we have to to do another unlearning as adults to participate in those ways um, or to appreciate why it's important for children to participate in those ways. And you're right. There are children who who don't want to, um, uh, you know, aren't comfortable speaking out in a group um don't want to don't uh, want to or or can't yet or can't yet or you know just would rather watch some dancing and play than participate in the dancing and play so i think that the connection there is awareness of whoever is you know being seen as a leader in that setting so if it's children and i'm the teacher then i Mm -hmm. have to know my children as well as i can individually and um you know, I'm not going to put someone on the spot. And I think that translates into students in a college classroom. I'm not going yeah. to say to a ch- to a student who I know is sort of introverted or doesn't talk a lot out loud, but I'm going to, I'm not going to put them on the spot and say, get up here right now. And, you know, tell me what you've got from the text or whatever. Yeah. Um, so, but I, but I, I would give it some thought. I would think about so what, what would be sort of a, a next level risk for that individual um, that's still not so risky that it shuts them down? I'm, and I'm not saying that I am now like, think that any thoughts of emotional safety in the classroom is bunk. And I don't have to think about that anymore. I just feel like I had swung too far to one side and I wasn't creating spaces um, where it seemed like the way I was teaching was what was a metaphor for what I would lo- want them to do with children, if that makes right. any sense. It, it sort does. of felt like I was just going around and around.
1: Yeah, and you know, so that's that's your learning in that area and your growth in that area. It's a great example of right Piaget's um, uh, you know uh, spiral of equilibrium and disequilibrium. Yeah. So your pendulum swung way over to one way, and yeah. now you're trying to find a good middle ground, right? Yeah. So what I heard while you were just speaking. Beyond the, my two favorite words, you're right. Um, <laughs> it was hard to keep listening after that. But um, what I heard is similar between teaching young children and teaching uh, young adults is that we assume the role of a facilitator
0: uh-huh.
1: and that and that we use our power in that role um, in the same way, which is the, the foundation that we often talk about in these podcasts, which is, you can't get to that moment of how far do I push, how, how do I invite, how do I know which person uh, mm-hmm. to, how to scaffold their learning. The I was just
0: gonna say, it's very Vygotskyan Bogots- at this it's point.
1: <laughs> right? But it all starts with um, relationship building. Uh-huh. Whether you're with young children or college students, Uh, You can't get to that part where you sort of individualize their experience or the curriculum um, without having gotten to know them and understanding this one's introverted, this one's neurodivergent, this one, I don't know, but there's something going on with them and I need to be gentle and sensitive Mm -hmm. to that. Um, So it all begins there, right? With Mm -hmm. the relationship building, with whoever is in the position of learner or whatever experience um, but I want to also go back. You used a term that I'm not certain all of your listeners know. So maybe you could define it. Emotional safety. What does that mean?
0: Um, ooh, let me think about that because I just use it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So really, it's just it's Maslow. I mean, I it's, it's the idea that um, if you don't feel safe, you can't move up to you know, experience is in the, in that next tier, whatever that is. So if you are constantly in fear of, um, being called on and not knowing an answer or, um, saying something stupid in front of your, you know, colleagues or other students, uh, something that you perceive as stupid, um, or, you know, even, you know, someone who maybe, um, uh you know has has a lisp when they talk and so they don't want to they don't want to speak out loud things like yep. that or english isn't their first english language english isn't their first language. language yeah um all of those things can contribute to someone not wanting to participate in a group conversation and um so you know in my in my desire to acknowledge that i feel like i didn't uh i didn't look for any zone of proximal development i just kind of let it go and then i turn into a lecturer and that's not the kind of it's not the kind of teacher i want to be and also i know it's not in line with what we know about how anyone really learns but adults really really learn and engage with ideas so um but it's a really
1: easy role to fall into yes uh not just if you're working with college age students but if you're working with two and three and four year olds yeah you can become the teacher the lecturer quote unquote instead of their facilitator
0: yeah And now that
1: what they're owning and what's next for them.
0: Yeah. Now that all of my teaching is virtual. So we're still meeting, you know, at regular times, but we do it through zoom instead of in the classroom. Um, Another layer of this is I'm aware that not everybody can have their camera on, right. They, there may be things in their background that they don't want um, people to see, or they don't want people to know where they live or um, just different sort of economic diversity okay. comes into that and and so then it's even easier for folks to get really comfortable not participating and um that's where i'm struggling right now because i don't even know if they're really there sometimes cuz they're not talking but
1: um well, and also because of syncing issues yeah. um trying to sing as a group right. makes it impossible virtually. yeah
0: yeah and connectivity if camera takes up too much of your your Wi-Fi or whatever the the, ter- the term is then you know you you can't participate um, in other ways. So I know there's lots of reasons, but, um, so I've got one class this semester who the first week I was like, you don't have to have your cameras on, but I'd really like it if you did. (laughs) And and so they do. And then the other class, they only turn it on while they're talking and then they turn it off again. And, um, uh, so sort of my, my first experiment in getting them more comfortable, um, speaking, you know, having discussions in class is, if there's something they're supposed to read that week, I've just asked them to, to, to take one thing that they underlined or highlighted and share it with, with the group and why it stood out to them. And that's been a really good, um, sort of entry level <laughs> discussing mm-hmm. discussion, uh, tool for me, but it's still really, really difficult in that, in that one group.
1: It is, but let's just for a second, notice the early childhood metaphor in what I just heard you say. Uh huh. So, um, you do a really smart strategic thing, which is you let them write something ahead of time, and then all they have to do is highlight it and read it out loud. They don't have to come up with a new thought,
0: mm-hmm. which yeah. for
1: some can be very, not only come up with a new thought, but then say it out loud without having thought it through, yeah. which doesn't always work for every adult's learning style. Yeah, And the same is true for young children. So you can't have young children highlight something they've written <laughs> for a virtual class but what's the metaphor there? What do we do for young children that also modifies the goal so that you set them up for success? Yeah. What What is What would that be? Uh,
0: uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I started thinking about other things in the book. Right. Um, okay, well, I mean, I can jump in if you want. Yeah, go ahead. Let me, let me think while you talk. Okay.
1: Um, for people who are just listening, Heather looks up at the ceiling when she thinks, which is- Do maybe I? she has- cheap notes up on the ceiling i don't
0: i have nothing but spackling or whatever you call that
1: stuff mm, on the and ceiling. we're supposed to believe that interesting um,
0: <laughs> in this um, room in whatever
1: this, room, in this space okay she also interestingly keeps looking at the palm of her left hand i don't know what that's about but anyways um okay so for young children oh you know, oh um she just came Invisible out of the, I'm actually intelligent closet um although she was already living outside there but anyways. Oh um yeah, so for young children, we'd make modifications, right? Yeah. So we would, um, if we're all going to sing a song or play a game, we wouldn't say, okay, now we're all going to sing. We're going to say, I'm going to sing a song. Whoever wants to sing with me can. Yeah. And we know that then we're not going to make anyone feel like a failure who's not comfortable singing. Um, we might say, um, oh my gosh, we're all building with blocks. You guys can build whatever you want. Um, for me, I'm making a castle. hmm um so that's the metaphor there For
0: yeah. what we
1: do for what you do in higher ed which is someone could say their whole thought extemporaneously if they want you wouldn't stop them right. but you give them uh an easier modification if that's a more comfortable baby step for them to take just like we do with young children
0: mm-hmm. yeah right? yeah um so, oh go ahead
1: okay well earlier we were talking about and we've been talking about what's similar between um, in that metaphor, between working with college age students and working with young children. Mm -hmm. But I'm also in what you've been talking about, I hear something that's different, which is, well, you you said a few things. One, most young children don't need to unlearn anything in order to play, right? So we may have the same goal, which is helping each human being, whether three or 19 or whatever, um, to be more playful. and we have different reasons for that. One, because for a young child, it's just a way of um, helping them discover how they can express themselves and and their creativity and their energy in the world. And for adults, it's that, plus there's a professional expectation of when they do that, here's how it impacts the young children. Mm -hmm. And so that's why you need to work on that area for yourself and practice it and do it, right? But for both of us, we have this goal in mind, and it's a question of what's the right pedagogy, the methodology, the steps along the way to get those two different audiences to that place. And so, you know, uh, so we're talking about being playful. So I'll just mention something I learned decades ago that's still out there, and I can't stand it, but it's a It's a landmark, whatever, in our field, which is Parton's stages of play. Yeah. I've never understood its purpose. It's never once helped me in 40 years as an early childhood educator. But in this conversation, I will say that one of them, although I've never thought it was a stage, it sits next to those those progressive stages in that theory, which is the onlooker behavior. I, I don't see it as a stage. It's something different. Yeah. But it is something that when we're working with young children, we have to respect. Right. The the child needs to just look and suss it all out and make sure it feels safe before they step in. Mm -hmm. So I have to recreate that in my course with young adults. I have to respect their onlooker uh, stage or tendency. Um, And just like with young children, take the leap of faith that the more I do it, the more they experience. Um, the, the classroom community we've created, that it's safe. Because mm-hmm. like you said, it goes back to Maslow and that feeling of safety and that I'm safe, that they're not going to get judged or graded. No one's going to make fun of them. You, you could say those words out loud on the first day of class, but what it really takes is repetitive experiencing mm-hmm. of me and my courses to know, oh, okay, actually, you know, he is what he says. He is his words. Oh, okay, maybe now I'll risk singing. Yeah. And the same is true if children are two, three or four. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, um, I mean, I have to go back to Parton for a minute because it is, it's no, it's very much presented as these are stages that you progress through and progression means success. And that means we are required as teachers to get from stage to stage, but she herself acknowledged that they, they don't go in that progression that they can all occur with each other. And so I, I think it's one I'm of those things that's that. been grabbed and made to fit into our deficit model. I'm the teacher mode. Um, but, <laughs> but the onlooker, you're, I'm glad that you brought that up because the onlooker play, I think, is so misunderstood and seen as a deficit. right? When in fact, it's right there with what Vygotsky says about the social um, component of learning. Uh-huh. Whether you're a child or an or an adult, there's a state there's a stage for most of us that we just are watching something before we try it out. Uh, uh-huh. we want to see, maybe we just want to see how it's done, or maybe we want to see that, okay, he took that risk and he's okay. Right. Um, and so maybe I can take that risk too. Um, well,
1: and I think the related sort of phenomenon that's coming up for me as you're speaking is, yeah, um, you know, so all of our minds, are structured to sort and classify all of our experiences, right. whatever we encounter. Right. So, um, young preschool teachers, as one random subset—not random subset of human beings—they are responsible <laughs> for 15 to 24 kids. Right. Huge. Yeah. Group that they're responsible for, um, and so you know, it's exhausting, it's intense. And they're doing their best sometimes to just survive, especially if they're new, right? Mm -hmm. So their brains sort and classify what's happening around them. Mm -hmm. And so one of the ways that we human beings, one example of a way that we sort is we sort people into categories called introverted and extroverted. And then we classify them and we think, oh, introverted, which we equate with um, behaving nicely, right, is the good one. And extroverted is the one that exhausts me and seems to um, take a lot of and put a lot of energy into the room. And so it's the bad thing. I think sometimes it's flipped. Right. Yeah. What happens for a lot of teachers, though, is that when they look back on their day, um, they were so busy trying to deal with I'm using air quotes listeners, um, the extroverted kids that the introverted kids get forgotten about that's uh-huh. the invisible child syndrome. Right. And um, or um, teachers get concerned. Well, she's not playing. Yeah. I'm going back to the onlooker thing. Right? Yeah. She's not singing. That must mean there's something wrong with her. There's some, I need to encourage her more. Yeah. Right. Because that's, I need to help her come out of her
0: quote unquote shell. Right. And or teach her play skills is the other thing we say. say we have to teach her some that. play skills. Yeah. Well, right. I mean, I see that in, um, I saw that when I was working, um, uh, in the speech language preschool, that's, that scene that onlooker play is seen as something that needs to be corrected a lot of times. And they see that, um, so they think, um, this child is lacking in play skills because he doesn't play with others or he doesn't play in the ways the others are playing. Right. So we need to, um, teach them. Play skills um, or teach right. them social you skills our so they won't be so introverted. People. And then, um, yeah, so right. we get messy.
1: Yeah. So if you look at the, the tools we use, the standards we have, and the tools we use to assess them in our field. And that's the show. Uh, now, go get students. your nerd on. Being yeah. an
0: onlooker and just watching Yeah. Job evaluations. You Teacher job evaluations. Are like that too. Are you a leader? Do you show initiative? Do you you collaborate? And for teachers who don't behave that way, they get docked on that rubric too.
1: Yeah, agreed. Yeah, yeah. So I think what you're saying is it's important to notice how these ideas uh, are structured around us and apply to college students, young children, teachers. Um, It's all over the place, and the first step is to become aware that we are we are in these we're we're forced to operate within these frames yeah and we either submit to that or we like you and i we rebel against it
0: sure and and maybe for me i just need to and this is something you bring up a lot i need to switch from um product thinking discussion and participation um or no, you know, no discussion and participation to this process that we've been sort of talking through with this whole whole episode is uh, relationship building and understanding our own priorities and goals and um, figuring out what each person might find helpful or unhelpful and and moving through it as a process instead of saying, um, I just expect everybody to participate every class session and Right. Um, if you don't, then you're not being risky enough to be a successful early childhood teacher.
1: Do you say that? No,
0: <laughs> that, was, <Okay. laughs> that was exaggerating right. for a fact, Richard. Okay, good.
1: Well, I mean, <laughs> dude, you got green hair. I have no idea what's real for you anymore. Um, What's real and what's pretend. Yeah. yeah. Um. So there are two little strategies I use. I, I never even thought of them as strategies. I just mm-hmm. thought of them as things that I say, but I realize now that maybe they're actual strategies that help in this, around this topic of participation in higher ed courses. So they're just things I say at the beginning of the semester. One of them is, as we go through the syllabus, and by the way, I have a lot of community college colleagues that don't agree with um, this being graded or having points for, uh-huh. and there's a lot of thinking around that, but um, I give points for participation. Um, and so I explain to the students you know, that means you need to show up to class. Yeah. You, if you don't show up to class, you get zero points, right? Cause yeah. you're not here. Um, although when I go back to teaching this spring as a, as a side note and, um, 50% of my classes from our college system are required to be in person on campus. Mm-hmm. And I'm thrilled about that. I can't wait to be back with my students. I right. still keep all the things i created online up there. They'll mm-hmm. still need to submit their assignments using Blackboard. That's our tool. Mm-hmm. And, um, if someone does miss a class, they could still participate in the exact same discussion on the discussion board. Yeah. So I'll give them that option, especially for those who are nervous to or whatever reason, speaking up in a group. But okay, I'll explain to them. So here's the deal. You see here, it says participation, five points for each session and we've got 16 sessions this semester. Right? Mm-hmm. But what you need to know is that um, it's kind of like an honor system. Um, I trust, My request to you, my invitation to you, is that you participate to whatever extent is most comfortable for you, and that week upon week, you keep pushing yourself to expand what's comfortable for you. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to be watching that carefully, but that's the goal. If you want to be a great early childhood educator, I invite you to try that this semester. So this week, maybe you'll just raise your hand. Next week, you'll raise your hand and you'll say a word. (laughs) <laughs> week after that, maybe you'll say a whole sentence yeah. and that's okay. That's participation. Or maybe you'll just be quiet and nod for five weeks. I trust that you're participating uh, in the way that's best for you and to the extent that's best for you. Keep pushing yourself, but just know that wherever you're at in that, um, you've got my support. I love you no matter what. It's all good.
0: <laughs> yeah. Okay?
1: And then the other thing I say to them when we are getting ready, you know, you I taught... <laughs> before we started this recording, you were telling me you were, we were remembering about how I was a guest lecturer in in one of your college courses recently, and that you warned your students ahead of time, get ready, he's gonna make you sing, (laughs) right? So I just think that's so incredibly important in early childhood higher ed coursework. One, because they don't know the songs and I want them to practice them. And two, I want to give them practice of letting go of those fears Mm -hmm. of singing. Mm -hmm. In my creativity class, there's very focused work on, on that for them. But in general, what I say to them before I start a song or a finger play or some, um, you know, let's all hold hands and I'm gonna pass the squeeze around the circle, whatever it is, right? Whatever the play thing is, I say to them, you need to know right now, right? That um, I know that you're probably gonna think I'm a huge weirdo, <laughs> right? Um, and here's why: because um, I've reached a point in my life where I don't give a shit anymore. I don't care. <laughs> okay. I fully express. We call that the Heather Show in my classes. In, I express me. Uh-huh. And it's gotten me in trouble when I've been a corporate vice president mm. and in other arenas. But that's me. And if you're going to be an early childhood ag- educator, you've got to risk being fully expressed. So I'm going to show you what that looks like. And I can tell you right now, some of you in your minds are going to receive it as oh my god he's a huge weirdo. Oh wow that's creepy. Mm-hmm. That makes me feel uncomfortable. Um and that's mainly because you haven't been around a lot of people who are fully expressed because that's not what our society encourages. Right. Yeah. But our job is to introduce young children to the world. And um I would hate to pass up that opportunity that I have with them in those foundational years to show them what it looks like to be fully expressed and to model it for them. Yeah. So here we go. Yeah. The wheels on the bus <laughs> go round and round and I <laughs> and the. Yeah. Yeah. And what's interesting to me or what's heartening to me is that at the end of the semester of each of my courses, I always have them do a reflection on what they found most valuable in the course. And time and again, in every single one of my courses, no matter what the topic, and in every single one of those courses, no matter what the topic. If it's an early childhood course, which it always is, there's singing and dancing and playing. It's, uh-huh. it's not the content, but it's always there every week and it's part of the context. And they all write about it. Right. I thought uh, Richard was so weird in the beginning. <laughs> I didn't know what to do with him. But, you know, by week five, I realized that's just who he is. He's not trying to trick me. Um, he's not trying to make me do something I don't want to do. And I felt more comfortable. And by the end of the semester, I was singing and dancing. Yeah, I'll never forget that. Yeah. And so so you also just like with young children, you have to take that leap of faith. They're competent and capable in this area. And you have to be very intentional about putting it out there so they know it's what you're inviting them to work on. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And by explaining that connection that adds an extra layer. Like I'm, I'm doing this for a purpose. I'm doing this one. I mean, I am a weirdo and this is fun for me, but right. also this will be helpful for you when you're, you know, doing your real work or whatever. But that, so that reminds me of, um, I'm reading this book called spark of learning or sparks of learning. And the subtitle is like using the science of emotion in the college classroom or something like that. Okay. Um, which also I want to, to record about once I'm done with it. <laughs> But right. but one of the I mean the main premise is <clears throat> that if there is a heightened state of emotion, um, we're more likely to remember what's happening. Um, as you know, unless it's like a trauma heightens, <laughs> you know, and our yeah. our brain is hijacked and we can't focus because we're surviving. Right. Um, but so things like laughing and and having fun, but also sometimes that little bit of fear when they have to respond to some, some piece of information or discuss a piece of information can also have the same sort of effect of solidifying the information that they're, that they're being asked to process.
1: Um,
0: And so when I hear, when I, when I hear you talking about singing in that way, you know, the ones who think it's really funny, have that little strengthened connection, but also the ones who are a little nervous about it will have a, a strengthened connection to, to what you're talking about in that moment.
1: Yeah. Similarly, you know, I think of myself as whether I'm with young children or grownups or anyone in between, I think of myself as I like to think of myself as a provocateur. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people think that's kind of a negative word. But for me, it connects with uh, Reggio Emilia's provocations. Mm -hmm. I like the the base of that word and, and what it really means. Yes, me too. And so another emotion that you can invoke in a college classroom is anger. Mm -hmm. Um, a little bit right a little too much and they're out of their window of tolerance and they can no longer process it and remember it and recall it later right but that's why there aren't any subjects that are taboo or that are off limits to me you know I'll say you know okay first of all just let me just acknowledge I'm a white male sitting here Mm -hmm. so that's the elephant in the middle of the room because 99 to 100 percent of my students are are not white males Mm -hmm. um but you know, let's talk when we go into conversations about anti-bias education, right, mm-hmm. um, and subjects very emotionally. Sorry, you froze for a minute. Go ahead. Okay. For anyone listening, we suddenly froze and <laughs> my brilliant words were lost into the Sorry. ether of. Uh, and Heather um, doesn't
0: know how to edit. So you just get all of it. Oh,
1: man. Um <laughs> I don't even remember what the hell I was saying. Anger, um, it was about anger. Well, yeah, so there are some people who aren't comfortable with yeah. those topics. And, and they anti-bias, they that's what it was. But, but using the book that, what you learned in that book you just read, you see how even anger, letting people get a little angry Mm-hmm. Um, by being willing to talk about a subject instead of just reading an article about it mm-hmm. is one of those things that will get them into that heightened state of emotion. Mm-hmm. But but that's a detour. Let's let's go back yeah. to yeah. participation and it will get them to participate. Yeah. And then you have to facilitate that. Right. You're you're free to share your your ideas and your opinions about the video we're going to watch or this article on anti-racist education we just talked about. And just know that someone else may say something that you don't agree with or that may upset you. and you know, part of being an early childhood professional is um, learning how to navigate those moments because mm-hmm. you'll be working with people who probably think or, or say similar things. And so you have to figure out how to handle that.
0: Children, people who will say things that you don't like or that make right. you angry.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. If I had a nickel for every time I was called Mr. Big Tummy Man um, <laughs> by a three year old, I had to get over that. I have, still have lots of issues around yeah. the size of my tummy. Yeah. But I had to let that one go in their service. Yeah. But, um, I also want to just point out that all of this, you know, we were talking about the ways in which that the, the, the two ideas I said earlier can be helpful. Uh-huh. The other way that it's helpful is uh, harkens back to the beginning of this conversation, which is um, letting them know it's a safe environment. Mm-hmm. So by me fully expressing myself in front of them as the weirdo that I am, it gives them permission to do that. You don't have to do that. I don't require it, but there's an, there's an unspoken permission that if I can be this way, you can be whatever your way is. And suddenly they start sharing like, you know, well, this thing happened to me when I was seven and my father wasn't there. My mother hit me or whatever it was. But to get to that point, it starts with you, the, Mm -hmm. the facilitator being willing to, Warts and all, just be yourself. Mm-hmm. That's the beginning of, that's, that's one of the ingredients of, of meeting your goal, which is preparing teachers for a job that requires playfulness.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, and, I'm out way, of
1: ideas now. Well, in the very beginning, you were talking about how you've done this and we've both done workshops and um, you know one-off gigs, uh, um, sessions. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know I'm under no illusions. I know that I can be playful with them and I can model being fully expressed, but it's missing that first part that we talked about earlier, which is relationships. Mm -hmm, Right. So my expectations for what's possible for them in a one-off workshop is completely different than my expectations for someone I'm going to be with for 16 Wednesdays in a row.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be, um, what do I want to say? We can, well, I guess it goes back to that, um, the zone of proximal development, the beginning of the semester, their need for what they need from us to feel like they can and should play and participate will be very different, you know, and our understanding gets better as the semester goes on, and then we can help them a little bit differently each time Uh if if we take that if we take that stand with them, it's harder for me virtually. I just don't get to know them as well. Oh, so I, I am also looking forward to having fewer classes um, delivered that way. Um, it, it was just so much easier when we were all in a room together.
1: Right, and, right. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, when I guest lectured your class that day, um, that so I've been teaching online from home asynchronously. So we never actually meet live yeah. since March of twenty. Yeah. Um. And so the first time I got to be with a group of young people and talk about early childhood stuff was when I guest lectured your class a few weeks ago. And that was such a joy. Yeah. And I think that they got a lot out of it. Yeah, so they're for a good me, group. in my world as I'm planning my spring schedule. um, At the very least, my classes will be what we call Ron. I don't know what that means, but it's the ones where they're online, but you do meet virtually uh, at least once a week. huh. And that's what I'm going to be doing, because. Although you're right, it's sad and disappointing. It can never be what it's like in person. We can't sit on the ground and play duck, duck, goose, or whatever crazy thing I'm going to have them do. Yeah, but it's better than nothing. Yeah, and it's a chance to connect with other human beings, and that that's part of it.
0: I yeah, feel like definitely,
1: you can't be playful in a vacuum.
0: Yep, yep, and you can't you can't model best practices for teaching children in a format that doesn't allow. I don't know better interaction, more connection. Yeah. Any uh, interaction. Humanity.
1: (laughs) They watch videos of me giving playful lectures, quote unquote, but at the end of the day, it's still me talking and that's not what young children or college students need.
0: Right. Yep. Yep. Well then we've all got some thinking to do. (laughs) Indeed. Um, Or not, you know,
1: I mean, I think, the first step is to let is to get out of our heads. Oh and sure, just yeah. Sing and dance and play.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: You know, stop thinking so much, nerds.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, how dare you? First of all, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and second of all, thank you. Um, I do recommend the book. It, it seems like it was sort of hard for me to track down when I went to order it but I think I eventually got it from Nacy.
1: It's an oldie, but a goodie.
0: Yeah. And it's a, it's a newer edition, but I don't know that it's changed much from the original. Yeah. Even though it was written 20 something years ago, maybe Yeah, um,
1: the wisdom in there, you know, that's the thing, just a side note about early childhood. Yeah. Cause I used to be like a textbook editor. Yeah. And so a lot of times one of the rules of thumb is you can't cite anything that's more than three years old because the research changes so much in our field. Yeah. And I agree with that. Um, I see the, I get the logic of that. But they're also in our field, what in terms of working with young children, there are ideas that are timeless. Yeah. There are things our grandmothers knew that turned out to be they were always correct. It's just now we have the neurological research to show it. Yeah. So don't always discount a book like a Jones's book that's 20 years old. Yeah. There are some you definitely should discount that are 20 years old. But there's Heather some you should discount you, that came out last long. year. What's that yes there's right. some you should
0: discount that came out last year and yeah you um you have
1: to look with an intentional careful eye and yeah. for whatever it's worth heather and i think this one still has yeah. ageless wisdom in it that can, that's still very helpful
0: definitely On and it will them, that's
1: not true for all of them
0: it'll rattle some cages too um uh you know she discusses she basically lets them grade themselves and discusses why she does that and it's really it's quite a it was really a good a good read and I'm Looking forward to get, I've just, I just went back when I got it out for this episode and just read what I had highlighted, reread it all, reread all that stuff, but I'm going to give it another good look here yeah. later this week.
1: Yeah. I mean, I read it for the first time 20 years ago, but now I've spent 20 some odd years being a cage rattler uh-huh. and I've lived to tell it, it yeah. you know, I haven't, nothing has killed me. Yeah. Um, so, you know, read it and go out and rattle cages, Heather and I need you to, because yes, some of those please. cages we and the young children should not be in that's absolutely and I, and right let me just say uh, that little statement is in memory of our dear dan Hodgins who would yes. have said almost those exact same words
0: yes yeah uh, we need an episode about dan it's coming yes um it's coming when i can get everybody together for that um okay well thank you richard this was fun as always went long as we always do <laughs> Um, but it was great. And I'm, i I just am grateful to be recording again after a while. Um, all right. Thanks everybody for listening. Come back again for another episode of that early childhood nerd. Goodbye.